Good evening. Happy holiday. How's everybody tonight? Okay. Coney Island hot dog extravaganza hoedown. Who had hot dogs? Who had two? Let's give a round of applause to the kids and gang that put it all together. Yeah. Yeah, we'll take that out. So, welcome. Um, by the way, welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group Alcoholics and God series. Hey, Siri, can I have a joke? What did the pirate say on his 80th birthday? I, matey. Uh, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Mike Chase. Now the meeting. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to have a two-minute meditation. So let's take a moment to get situated. Please turn off your iPhones, droids, beepers, Game Boys. Oh, my God, I'm almost out of power. Cool. Excellent. God was going to take it off anyways. Um, Let's take a moment to get situated. Take this time to get reconnected to God. Let the craziness of your day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study today. So is everybody in? Come in there, boys. Are we ready back there? Good. Let's close the doors and get this thing started. The monks are coming in as they file in. Make room for them. Here they go. And I'll see you guys in two minutes. Enjoy your time with God.
have the fog light prayer on either side on these screens if you don't know it mumble along or repeat God let your love shine through me like a fog light so those whom are lost sick and dying can find your love through me Boom. there is a solution from the big book page 17 the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution we have a way out which we can absolutely agree and which we can do in brotherly and harmonious action this is the great news those who carry from those who suffer from alcoholism carries to those who suffer from alcoholism i've just asked keith to come up and read appendix two spiritual experience you haven't really met keith but you have met keith this is this is Allie's significant better half other half other half um So, we read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it's kind of important no one is, right? Um, Has anybody ever been to the Wednesday night study group? He's going to start sharing that too. So everybody, Wednesday night's his. This is Keith. Two sides to that. Yeah, right. That's right, little man. Hi, my name is Keith and I'm an alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be the nature of a sudden spectacular upheaval. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he's undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance and belligerent denial. We find that no one need to have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is contempt prior to investigation. Thank you very much, Keith. Uh, Remember, Wednesday nights in Pompano. Are you starting on page zero? 
Excellent. So that's definitely one of the best means. That's where I started my big book journey, actually. Um, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. It's a tech-free meeting. What that means, if you want to use your cell phone, we got a very comfortable lobby. You can still hear everybody, but you won't be distracting the people around you. So let's not text or use our phones in the room. Um, set your phones to airplane meeting mode or just, hey, turn them off. So it's an honor to introduce her on her last night. We were just talking, a couple of us, that this has been the fastest 12 weeks I think we've ever gone through. It's just like, it's just like you just started last week. She's been um, bullet points the entire time. God has definitely shown up uh, with, with fire on his heels. She's been, uh, she's amazing. So let's just give her her final welcome applause. Allie. I'm Allie, I'm an alcoholic. Hey. Happy 4th of July. Um, boom. boom. Happy sober 4th of July. You know, we're going to talk about freedom tonight and uh, independence. Hey, Tom. <laughs> Good to see you, buddy. And this is bittersweet for me. If you've been with me, you know, if you've been listening, you know that, uh, you know, we're not supposed to have favorites, right? And I have a background as a teacher. You're taught, like, you don't have favorite students, but this, these guys, you know, you guys are my favorites. <laughs> this home group, you guys are just amazing, and you've kept me, yeah. I mean, honestly, this group is like, <laughs> I don't want to get emotional, but um, I look forward to being with you guys, and you've just enriched my sobriety so much, and you've taught me really just how to love a little bit deeper, and I didn't know what that was. You know, I didn't know how to love when I got here. I only knew darkness. And I only knew, you know, misery and depression and, and how to take. And I had no idea that this thing called the fellowship of the spirit was going to infiltrate me when I walked in the doors 12 years ago of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that we have a special gift here where my spirit and the spirit in me sees the spirit in you. And, and we have a communication. We have a language of the heart. And there's some people in AA that really get that. And you guys live it. And that's this group here. And you can feel it when you walk in the room. And if you're new, welcome. Um, this is a very important holiday for me to stay sober on because 4th of July was like all bets are off. You know, I used to just get so wait. I mean, I always got wasted, but 4th of July was like super like fireworks wasted. You know, <laughs> everything was like exploding. And, um, and I love sober fireworks and I hope you'll join us afterwards. A bunch of us are going to go down. We're going to take something called a sun trolley. I don't know. I'm from Delray. There's something called a sun trolley. I brought a change of clothes. I'm not going to go in my blazer. You know, you'll see me in shorts and I'm going to be clapping like a crazy little girl, you know, watching the fireworks. You're more than welcome to join us. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to miss you guys. And, um, I just want to, again, sincerely thank the group for having me these past three months. And I agree it has gone pretty fast, you know, and, and, and uh, a lot of times, you know, all week leading up to it, I'm like, oh, you know, I speak on Thursday night. But, but I always leave here, and I, all the love you guys give to me, I, it lifts me up. And I always leave here feeling so much lighter and so much closer to God. And the last two weeks I talked about improving, I think. I talked about improving my conscious contact with God and, and how do I do that. And, and how do I continue to do this service that keeps me sober and saves my life and, and helps others. And it's just this joint thing that we do where I help you and you help me and we both get fed and that's how God works in and through us and the fellowship is still here you know 80 plus years later and it's amazing um so it is my last session and um you know the 12 steps in our literature it says the 12 steps of practice have enabled the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole 
And I'm here to tell you that's true for me. You know, not all the time. You know, I'm not always a whole person, but I'm definitely a lot better than when I walked in. And I only knew darkness, like I said. And, and for me, you know, what that statement means is the 12 steps have enabled me to go from darkness to light. And I, you know, I had all those labels before I came in the rooms and I, you know, was a prey to misery and depression. And I was in such a dark place all the time. And, you know, I just thought that God got it wrong when he created me. I really did. I was an agnostic, you know, I didn't have too hard of a, of a time with the God thing when I got here, but, but I really did believe that I was just such an alien and I was so constitutionally incapable of, of expressing love. And I had such a fear of people and I, you know, the way I grew up moving as much as I did and just being so afraid of people and everybody was judging me. And I mean, by the time I'm, I find alcohol, it, it rescues me from that for a little bit. You know, alcohol kind of restores me to sanity because I was really insane before the alcohol. I had all these other things going on. And I just remember, you know, my first relationships growing up, you know, I was a gymnast growing up and not for like my whole childhood, but you know, in our literature it talks about that we're driven by a hundred forms of fear and that selfishness and self-pity and self-delusion and self-seeking. And I'm going to, you know, when these things crop up, it's going to cause me to demand more of you than you could ever give me or to try to dominate you. But I don't know I'm doing that because I'm selfish and self-centered to the extreme. And then what happens is if you come into contact with me, that's how I'm now behaving. And then you act out seemingly without provocation because I've now been back I'm in self at this point and I just think and I only see what you're doing to me so I go through my whole life like this and I go through my whole life in constant collision with others never being able to come into real communion with people because I was so obsessed with what you were doing to me and what you weren't doing for me and if you weren't talking about me why not you should be talking about me you know my ego like i'm awesome like i'm the most important person in the room and i had this perverse self-hatred you know i wouldn't even admit that i strongly disliked myself because my ego was too perverted for that and and so when i'm going through these interactions in my life you know like a gymnast for for instance you know i was competitive and and they were training me to be in the Olympics. That was part of the reason why I moved around so much. And, um, and I mean, I was young, but I was training nine hours a day. I mean, I wasn't really, I was being homeschooled. And I remember <laughs> the skill came up where I had to do like a triple full on like the, the balance beam, right? And I, I remember being struck with fear. And the fear was so intense. And we had like a two-week break. And I just told my mom, I was like... I don't want to ever do gymnastics again. And she, and she had sacrificed all this stuff. And she was, you know, she tried to reason with me a little bit. And, and she's like, finally, you know, at the end of our two-week vacation, she was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I don't want to do gymnastics anymore. And I just quit. And then fast forward, you know, I get that one best friend when I'm 13 years old. She's a drinker. You know, she teaches me how to do other forms of alcohol. Her parents were old head hippies that grew things on their horse farm. <laughs> Use your imagination. And, uh, and we would take long walks in the woods and, and philosophize and talk about And we would drink and we would have fake IDs and we would go into Philadelphia and bad areas and we would get into fights because I had a bad temper before the drink. And that was like our mission was just to, you know, be anti-societal and just try to go out there and, and cause chaos because we were in so much pain. And, you know, she lived on a horse farm, so we started riding horses together. And she was, she was very competitive and nationally known, actually. And we start showing horses. And I was, I, I was taught to ride Western, which, you know, there's a horn in the saddle when you're riding Western. 
And one day we switched to English, which there's no horn in the saddle, and it's a lot harder if you've been trained first in Western. <laughs> and so you've got to grip the horse a lot harder on, when you're in an English saddle, right? And so we're going over the jumps, and I, was go- I had never jumped on my horse before, and, and we jump, and the horse throws me, and I fall, and I, I, I think I landed on my head. Um, I probably did, because I don't remember. So yeah, I wasn't wearing my helmet either, and I landed on my head. And then that was it. You know, I had that fear come up, and I didn't know how to persevere through that. You know, I don't have that that reliance on God. <laughs> I'm like 14 years old. I don't have that thing that we talk about in here. You know, a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe. I don't have that. And so I just, again, I just quit. Like, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, and I'm driven by that. And that's not even so much the fear that Bill is addressing when he talks about that on page 62. Well, we get the problem, you know, right before we take that third step. He illustrates that internal condition for us so beautifully. And it just gets repeated. You know, like I've been saying, there's different levels. There's, there's many layers to these steps. And that third step, you know, will just keep getting repeated over and over again. I'm, I'm going to have to keep continuing to turn things over and to surrender and to let go and to pause and surrender and let go. And it's going to keep asking me to do a series of these things as I go on and I work in emotional sobriety after the drink problem gets removed. And so, but the kind of fear that I have cropping up is the kind that's debilitating and it drives me back into a depression and it just continues to isolate me, you know, and by the time I get to high school, it's just a wreck, you know, I'm a wreck. And, uh, I had that one boyfriend who, you know, proposed to me, we were like 16 at this point on the, on the uh, ceiling of my grandmother's basement. He wrote it out in green Sharpie, will you marry me? And, um, my drinking got really bad and I, you know, cheated on him and lied about it but he found out and we broke up and I was devastated and then you know he told everybody in the high school and got them against me and my it confirmed my worst fears you know my dad left when I'm nine and it confirmed all that fear of abandonment and again I don't see my part you guys I was blacking out drunk from the first drink so I don't even remember that alleged situation I just think the world is out to get me page 62 selfish and self-centered to the extreme You know, what usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. I begin to think that life doesn't treat me right. I'm a victim. Self-pity, self-delusion, self-seeking. And I continue to produce confusion rather than harmony. And so when that happens and he breaks up and the people start gossiping about me in high school and everybody treats me like I have a disease and everybody's now distancing themselves from me, I don't see my part in that. I just, this old agreement that I've made with myself when my dad left when I'm nine years old, this old belief system I have that I'm not worthy of ever being loved, that's why my dad leaves, I'm never going to be good enough for anybody in my family, that's why my mom leaves me in the psych ward, right? This, this old belief that I have about myself that's going to kill me, it's, it's based in self-centered fear gets reinforced with every interaction I have with a human being, you know, including them, including the high school people, including my supposed friends. So that when people continue to harm me, that darkness just keeps getting deeper. And it's the opposite of being filled with God. Not saying that God's not there. I just can't access the sunlight of the spirit because I am driven by this. I'm blocked by it. Completely stuck in a self-imposed prison that I've, I've created the problem, you know, and what do we learn that the disease centers in my mind? So how is it that the same mind is going to fix the mind where the problem is? I got this. I can figure it out. It was me for three years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't have anything. My biggest prayer was, I don't know. You know, my greatest prayer was God, please help me. That little shift I get when I'm beaten into a state of reasonableness, thanks to the terrific beating administered by alcohol. 
And that's when I get that, that courage and that willingness and that little, little tiny bit of humility that I need to realize that maybe there's a better way. When all my scorecards read zero, maybe there's a better way. Maybe you guys do have something and I should just give in to that and, and give up and surrender. You know? And so these interactions continue to keep me sick and suffering. And I have this darkness, and it just keeps getting more cavernous, cavernous and deeper as I go. And um, I think I'm going to just live forever. You know, my alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I think I'm just going to continue to live like that. And this is going to be my lot in life. And I start to really think that I'm from a different time period. Like, I, I convinced myself, you know, by the time I get to college, I got let back into the same university that kicked me out the first time for stealing, you know, my roommate's things. And uh, again, on the second full scholarship. And um, I can't go to class because I'm depressed and I hate people. At this point, my whole motto is I hate people. I'm, I'm living in the wrong time period, you know. I'm, I'm born into this weird human uh, condition. And I was, like, into philosophy and just crazy stuff. And I was reading a lot and writing like, a, like Edgar Allan Poe, you know. And, and that's what I thought. I, you know, I would, I would sit there. Under, and I went to this beautiful college in New Jersey. It was a liberal arts college. And it was very secluded, and it was in the woods, and there was a lake. And, I mean, I loved nature. I was into all that hippie stuff. And, um, <laughs> and I would put on my finest daishiki, and I would go sit under the tree by the lake. I had my little spot picked out. And, you know, this was before I had a laptop or an iPad, you know, <laughs> dating myself a little bit. And I would sit out there with my journals, and I would just write. And I would have my Sony Walkman. And sometimes it would be Wu-Tang Clan in there, and sometimes it would be the doors, you know, dependent on my mood. And we didn't have iP- iPod Shuffle, so I would have to listen to the whole CD and kids would walk by and they they would like listen they were like look at me and and I I look at them and I'm like look look at these idiots going to class like what are you guys doing going to class we got alcohol here like we've arrived it's fine we can drink now like it's okay you know I have a fake ID who's with me let's go into Atlantic City let's let's get wasted and they're doing weird things they're going to class my roommates are going to class and I'm like what they're doing other weird things they're joining soccer teams you know, they're joining sororities. And I'm like, what is all this groups? I hated group things. I was like, what is all this group stuff? They're fitting in with each other. They're getting along with each other. They're laughing. They're, they're becoming friends. And I'm observing, you know, I'm an, I'm an observer of human nature. And I'm observing all this with my weird, you know, alcohol-induced psychosis mind is what they said that I had. And, um, yeah, that was true. <laughs> and I'm sitting there listening to, you know, Wu-Tang Clan and DMX and, and the Grateful Dead, you know. And I'm just, like, watching people. And I'm, like, you know, making my little characters out of them and whatever stories I was writing. And I'm like, look at these losers. Like, don't, don't they realize that they're, they're missing out on all this fun? Like, this is the fun stuff? And what happens with somebody like me is that turns on me. I, that gets me into a place of complete loneliness. See, this is just my belief, and I can only share my experience up here. God didn't create me for that. God created me for this. You know, we have the ability to talk for a reason, right? We're not just birds stripping around out there. We have the ability for language. We have the ability, you know, we, we're far advanced, right? <laughs> Spearheads of his um, ever-advancing creation. And I'm created to be in communion with you. In some form or another, you know, the language of the heart is that we're meant to exist with each other. And the more I go against that, my natural nature... Right, and the more that I continue to be convinced that I'm not that I'm not like you, and I'm creating this problem to which there seems no solution, that darkness just gets keeps getting reinforced, and I get more and more lonely, and I get more and more depressed, and I keep thinking that it's the world, and now I'm drinking at the world, and I'm doing other forms of alcohol at the world, 
and I almost die, you know, that's, that becomes a thing. <laughs> it becomes, you know, flatlining becomes a thing. It becomes a thing. And homelessness under the boardwalk, that becomes a thing. <laughs> it's insane, you know. And that's why I stand up here and I'm like, for three months I've been coming here and I've been consistent and I've showed up and it's, I don't have the power to do that. You know, that's who I am. That's who I was when I got here. That's, this isn't me. You know, I don't, the things that I've been able to experience in sobriety are not of, of my doing. I just follow the directions as they're outlined in the big book. I just do the next right thing. And I continue to surrender every single day, sometimes every hour of the day, depending on how much fear I have cropping up. And time passes. And we get our, we get lot, we don't get our lives back. We get reborn. He had the third step promise. We get reborn. We're reborn. We have a spiritual death. We have a spiritual awakening. And how am, how am I, who am I to walk away from that? You know, who am I to say no when Alcoholics Anonymous asks me to do something? My life is none of my business. It's just not. And that's how I continue to experience joy and peace and serenity. And this, this is all feeding into that spiritual awakening, right? You know, we have all different kinds, right? We have the slow and gradual kind, which is the awakening. We have the sudden and profound kind, which is the experience. We have the psychic change. Old attitudes, ideas, and beliefs are cast out, suddenly replaced with new ones. A new pair of glasses, shift in perception. You know, it all leads to the same thing. It's all the same thing. And I was, I was desperate for that. I needed that. I was going to die without that. And in the second step, we learn, well, really, we learn in the first step, right? But in the second step, we learn we all need to have one of these things. And so that's what we get with the 12th step. We get the grand prize. We get the grand promise. And every single step has promises. We have promises in the forwards. And there's a few forwards in there. We get promises. You know, we're nearly 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Bill's saying we can be like that. Rarely have we seen a person fail. Starly followed the path. Those were the, they did that stuff. That's the result they got. And that's what the directions in the big book are all about. Precisely how we, are, how we have recovered. Not just a little bit. Not just maybe do some of this and maybe don't, you know, go work the NA step book. <laughs> that's not what it says. You know, it says precisely. I don't want to mess around with that. <laughs> you know, are you, if you're paying attention, like my, my mind is crazy. My mind's insane. I have insanity when it comes to alcohol. I have insanity that comes out in other ways. I don't want to start thinking that I don't need to follow what's in that book. Or I can do this my way. My way doesn't work. We, we get crystal clear with that information in the first four chapters in the doctor's opinion. And so this is, this is how I, my ego starts to get deflated just enough. You know, I come in here with this gaping hole in my soul. And it's not even enough, you know, for three years I'm down here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm trying to control and enjoy it. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to prove myself an exception to the rule. I'm a scholar. I bring my big book to the bar. <laughs> it's my ego telling me this. Not true. And, and I read out the directions. And, uh, and I, I do it. I control it. I have my two beers and I go back to my halfway house. But I don't enjoy it. And that's what it says in that third chapter, you know, that I'm going to be able to, that I, I'm going to obsess. My great obsession is that I'm going to be able to control and enjoy it. It's a great obsession. And I couldn't fully buy into this thing yet because all that darkness, and again, you might not have this deal. This is just my truth. It's what I've discovered from going to the work a few times. 
that darkness was still so uncovered. It was so repressed. It was so unconscious that it, it was, it was dominating me and it was, it was, uh, restricting me from fully surrendering in that first step. You know, it's self-centered fear, but for me, it, it ran so deep. It was stuff that started happening when I'm four years old, you know, lying about the M&Ms, right? <laughs> that whole thing. And, uh, and I don't know that yet. And you know what? It's okay. It's absolutely okay because God doesn't make too hard of terms with those who earnestly seek. And if you have that deal going on, he's already rescued you. You're already safe and protected. If you're sitting here tonight, all you have to do is just lean into that. Even if you have the obsession of the mind, there's a prayer for that. And there's action for that. You don't ever have to drink again, you know. And then you get on this thing in steps 2 through 12, you get on the rocket ship ride. And, and everything changes. And we get this whole new way of, of living. And what doesn't make any sense to me is I don't even, I don't even know what's happening. It's nothing I'm doing. It's things I'm not doing. <laughs> Nothing is getting added in my life. Things are getting subtracted as I go. You know, my ego is getting less and less and less. And I'm starting this, this ability to love and this ability to remain um, seeking this higher power and the guidance and then carrying the message and doing my best with that and doing service and however I can. It continues to lift me up every single day. So the, and he says it, right? He says this in the 12 and 12. He says, the joy of living is the theme of the 12th step. The joy of living we have under all circumstances. What? <laughs> I was a hopeless depressive when I got here. What are you talking about? Joy? I didn't know what that was. You know, so I spend three years down here and I'm trying to get this first step. I'm fumbling around with it, you know. And I don't know what I don't know. And God is patient with me. And you guys are patient with me. And I have these two women that collectively have saved my life. One of them is now my sponsor. The other one is a very dear friend. And they watch me coming into my home group just picking up white chips and, you know, sharing in the meeting about how much I know about the big book. And then I'm going home with the obsession of the mind. And they see through it because they're awakened. And they, they see into me. And... Um, and they just loved me and they modeled that for me. They modeled what it was like to have faith under all conditions. Cause I knew that they were, you know, the women in my home group, I saw them going through life stuff. And not only did they not talk about drinking or think about it, it was always about their first thought was how much they trusted God, how much they relied on God and how many sponsees they were helping and which convention they were speaking at or serving at, you know, or other forms of service they were doing in their church and in their synagogue and, you know, whatever else was going on or they're doing yoga you know holding meditation workshops and we just stay in action with that stuff and it keeps us emotionally sober keeps us out of the emotional booby traps bill calls it it keeps us cleared out and so when i finally surrender it's because i've had enough of the darkness i've uncovered enough of it in those three years where i was dancing in and out you know the rooms and then I think finally God, and this is just for me, I, I think finally he just had mercy on me. It was a cry in the dark, and I just had so much pain on that last drink, and I was only out for three days. But it was just enough to get me to understand how powerless I am. And I understood perfectly well just how screwed I am in that first step. Because <laughs> we get the bad news in the first step, and we learn how powerless we are. And after I surrendered, I got my sponsor that I have now, and everything changed. Everything changed. Everything changed. 
You know, I learned right there in that moment that God was going to meet me right where I was. And when the obsession gets removed, now the whole thing in steps two through 12 becomes about moving through the darkness and into the light. You know, the 12 steps enabling me to become happily and usefully whole. And in step two, I come to believe that God's going to restore me to sanity and remove that obsession to drink. And he does. He does. By the time we get to the 10th step, it's one of our promises. You know, and um, and a little bit of physical stuff going on. And I had health issues. And um, I start waitressing in in two restaurants because one's not good enough for me. You know, I have to do everything to the extreme. And I get a second job. And it's for a nicer restaurant. And there's like you know, a lot of different types of servers working. I'm trying, like, not to slander them (laughs) from the podium. There's a server working there who was, like, mean to me. I don't know. I know it sounds like, wah, wah, boo-hoo, but she was. And and she was, you know, my my superior. She was the banquet captain. And, you know, she she would boss me around, and I'd be working these 13-hour shifts, and, you know, I've, you know, was new back in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was trying to maintain, and and I, I was smoking and I couldn't smoke a cigarette and I would get really like drained and exhausted and, and I would call my sponsor and I would get so emotionally drained from how this girl was treating me and I didn't have enough self-esteem yet. Like I didn't have a voice. I didn't know how to tell her like, stop. <laughs> you don't have the right to treat me that way. Like I just, I didn't, I felt like when she was treating me that way that it was still reinforcing that old belief system that I'm not worthy and I'm not lovable. And I, again, I don't know this is going on consciously. It gets uncovered later when I do six and seven and the fourth step. Um, but, and so this is happening. And I remember complaining to my sponsor and she just said, you have to pray for her and you have to do the four step prayer. God, this is a spiritually sick woman. How can I be of service to her? Father, save me from being angry with her. Thy will be done. And she said, and then you go in there and you remember who you work for. So when I come to believe in step two, what I'm doing right now is I'm coming to believe in the third step because that was a leap for me. So my step two and my first time around and my second time, and even my third time around looks like, well, now I'm just going to believe in the third step. That when I get restless, irritable, and discontent at work, and I feel like the world is wronging me, I have to ask God to come in and direct my thinking. I have to turn my thoughts over and my will over and ask him to be with me right here in this moment and bless her, change me, and then keep working and waiting on these tables. You know, And the whole purpose of me getting this second job was to be able to afford to go back to college, which was you know a thing. Like my sponsor... Um, when I finally do my fist up with her, she knew that like that was what God intended for me to do. And she didn't say that in those words, but she held me to a higher standard that I could ever hold myself. And I needed the money to do it because I, you know, my family cut me off and I was, you know, self-supporting, declining outside contributions. So I needed that money and I was making really good money there. And she, she made me stick it out and where I wanted to quit so badly and she wouldn't, and I had another waitressing job. So I was like, I got the other one. She's like, you're not making as much money there. You're going to keep doing this. God has you there for a reason. You're on a spiritual path. Now he's going to put people in your life that are going to teach you to be a better person and teach you all the things you don't want to be. And you just have to trust him and continue. And I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, so I worked that whole season there, and Mother's Day is like the coup de grace down here. It's the end of season. It's like the busiest day in the restaurant, and I did not want to go in and work that double. I was exhausted, and I had been, you know, getting what I perceived as being abused at the time because, you know, I'm like such a victim in the beginning, and and uh, and I just didn't want to do it. But she's like, you know, you you made a commitment to the restaurant. You're going to do it. So I go in there, and I work that last shift, and I make $450 in one shift, and... 
And I go in the next day and I give my two weeks to my boss, the owner of the restaurant. And I thought I was so important there and he didn't care. You know, I thought it was going to be, oh, the world's crashing to an end. Like Allie's resigning <laughs> from this restaurant in Del Rey. Like he was like, okay, you know, like I didn't know who I thought I was. But he was like, all right, like peace season's over. So we, we were going to cut you anyway. Peace out. You know, and I was like, all right. Um, and I did that under the direction of my sponsor. And what it taught me was that people didn't have as much power as I kept giving them that I was giving my power away because I wasn't depending it on God. And I was still caring too much about what people thought of me and how they treated me and what they weren't doing. And I wind up making exact, and this is God's plans. Like I have a new employer, you know, being all powerful. He provides what I need if I keep close to him or perform his work well. We have the third step promises. And because I kept close to him and I was trying as best as I could to perform his work well, not only did he keep me sober through all of that and reasonably happy through all of that, but I wound up making exactly enough money to afford my first semester back in college because I was still waiting for my financial aid to kick in. It was like to the dollar. I saved like $7,000 in six months working that job. And I was on my own, you know, I was paying rent and I was, you know, paying for all my bills and I had my little hoopty car with no front end and I still made exactly enough. And when I got out of there, I realized that people don't have the ability to hurt me as much as I think they do. And that there's a loving higher power out there who wraps his arms around me and keeps me safe. Even when I don't feel like it's there, it's, he's there. And so when I do that fourth step, you know, it was a little different with my, with my current sponsor because there was a disconnect as to why I kept drinking. Mm. And we did it right out of the big book. You know, we have the five column inventory, but then we went further. We went with emotional sobriety. And be careful if you have one of those sponsors because they really make you go deep. And if you're not prepared for it, it could get a little hairy, you know. And so, but I, I just prayed and I trusted. And at this point I had evidence of the third step in my life. I had evidence of step two. I hadn't thought about a drink in, you know, four months. And I knew that God was working in my life. And I, I was a baby with this stuff, but I just trusted. And, and she asked me, you know, after we went through the inventory, the traditional way, she said, all right, we're, let's look at these reasons. Let's look at what's keeping you blocked from God all the way. Why you can't let go. Absolutely. And one of the questions she asked me was, you know, something about my father, like how, have you, have you truly forgiven yourself for your dad leaving when you were nine years old? And she had me journal on that. And I had to pray each time I had to ask God to guide my pet each, each time. And I would have to meditate and do all this stuff. And then the second question was what, what situation keeps coming up in your life that has 10 years attached to it? And it was all the fear of people stuff still, still dominating me. Fear of people, fear of people. You know, I had a lot of friends and failed friendships and, and sobriety and, you know, I only knew how to dominate people or depend more, depend on them more than what they could ever possibly give me. And, and people move on, you know, Florida's a transplant state and people were moving and I'm taking it personally and, and people change, you know, I, I don't have experience with people when I get here. Right. So I think everybody needs to act. If you're going to call yourself my friend, you need to act as if you need to act a certain way. I have a script and you need to follow that. And that's not realistic. That's not real life. And when people deviate from my plan of what a friend should be, I get offended <laughs> and I think you don't love me. And all that fear stuff comes back. And this is all coming out when I'm right. Writing. And there was another question, which I don't remember. I'd have to dig up that journal from, you know, 10 years ago to find it. But, uh, and I journal on that stuff. And then in the fifth step, I get honest with her. But with the fourth step, I get those promises. You know, after I do that prayer, I learned that I commence to outgrow fear and that I'm in the world to play the role that he assigns. And what happens with those four step promises for me 
is that because I went through all that junk with that restaurant and that girl where it was teaching me how to stand up and have a voice for myself and all those valuable lessons I learned, to play the role that he assigns was the next right thing was to go back to school because he didn't want me to be a waitress forever. It was just for me. That wasn't his plan for me. And thank God for my sponsor who was awake, who knew that, who was intuitive. And she guided me. And, you know, this other woman and my whole, you know, support group were guiding me on this path. You know, I got raised by these women in AA. And, that, and so I go back to school, you know, and that comes, you know, by the end I get, you know, I go back to school and I get to practice again all that fear of people. And I've shared about, I shared about it here on my four step. And I had, you know, all the conversations with myself about what people were judging me. And I was 10 years too old and. And again, I'm commencing to outgrow fear. And this is how I commence to outgrow fear. And then in that fifth step, you know, when I share everything, I had never been honest with anybody ever in my life. And I just ask God to meet me right where I'm at. And I say, may the God in me see the God in my sponsor. And we do it. And I tell this woman everything. And I get completely honest with her to an embarrassing extent. <laughs> and she's not embarrassed. You know, she's heard it before, I'm sure. And, um, and I leave there and I experience what the fifth step promises us, which again, just some of the promises, right? We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. We begin to sense our creator. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. The feeling that the drink problem has been removed will awesome come strongly. We feel we're on the broad highway of life, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Guys, this is step five. This is not step 12 yet. And that, I, I felt that. I felt a release when I walked out of her house. And I went home and I thanked God and all that stuff happened. And I could be alone at perfect peace and ease. You know, he says our fears, again, he's emphasizing this removal of fear. That my fears begin to fall f from me. And I feel the nearness of my creator. And, and, um, and I begin to live from that place. From that fifth step, everything starts to shift. And here comes that psychic change. You know, when I start feeling God's presence and I start experiencing the realm of the spirit right there my whole attitude towards service starts changing, you know, cause it was a, it was a have to when I got here, but things start changing for me and I start experiencing this joy and this love and like feeling more like I belong here. And then I'm here just to serve and to be of service, you know? So then by the time I get to six and seven, it's just about getting willing to have him remove the things that I uncovered in my fourth step. And that continues for my lifetime, you know. I, I don't just go through that stuff one time. That's, But I get all those awesome promises. I start to learn a little bit about what humility is and how I get right-sized. You know, I'm not too far into egoism and I'm not down here and wallowing in self-pity anymore. I start to get right-sized. And that's some of the promises that we get with six and seven. And then, you know, we get nine. And nine is big. You know, when I went out and did those amends... I didn't hear anything back for a while from my family and and I was a little I was hurt by that you know and I just had to trust and realize that I showed up and I did my part and the rest was up to God and just right foot left foot breathe that was it and eventually what happened is as I stayed sober through the years my family came back in my life and they came back with a lot of love <laughs> and I have amazing relationships with my family today you know the better than anything I ever could have dreamed and it's because of that ninth step no matter how far down the scale I went, I see, I still see it today with the women I sponsor and even my family. You know, sometimes I help them out with stuff, but I see how my experience can benefit them. You know, fear of economic insecurity leaves me. When I went through that situation with the restaurant way back in my first year and I see that I make exactly enough money to go back to college, 
God's my employer. My money is his money. You know, he's the principal. I'm his agent. He's the father. I'm his child. And those third step, that position, that third step position just gets reinforced again in that ninth step. And I start to experience those amazing promises. And then in step 10, I'm just continuing. And by the time I get to my 10th step in my sobriety, I've now started to form real friendships with people. I'm serving in two home groups. You know, I had safely exited out of that restaurant job and I made that money. And my sponsor starts putting in my head that I need to go back to school and all that stuff. And, um, and I continue and I enter the world of the spirit and my next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Now I can't sponsor yet, but I'm starting to show up for my home group and greet people at the door and I'm doing it with love in my heart because I can't, I look back, I look back and step two, I come to believe God's going to restore me to sanity and step 10, I get it back. By this time, sanity has returned. <laughs> You know, the, the drink problem gets removed in step 10. Assuming I'm spiritually fit, I can go anywhere on God's green earth. And I do that. I try that out. You know, I start going to concerts and um, I'm serving out. You know, I was serving alcohol in my early sobriety and, and I didn't have that obsession deal come back. Like I was just placed in that position of neutrality. I experienced that 10 step promise and it was like, what's happening? <laughs> like, this is weird. This isn't supposed to be how this is. Like, I'm an alcoholic. Like, what is going on? And, uh, and I get that deal and I understand that to grow in understanding and effectiveness means I have to continue to watch and I have to be watchful of old self coming back. I have to continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, I ask God to remove them and it's four through nine all the time. And that's what it is. And I do accountability with my sponsor. You know, the first time going through it, I take those little inventories and I call her with them at the end of the week. And I have sponsees do this, you know, their first time around with the work. And I do my spot check inventory during the day. And this is how I remain undisturbed. I don't do it perfectly. It's a practice. Trust me, especially the first time going through it. I'm like a baby with this stuff. But it continues for my lifetime. And I get to a place where things don't, I'm not botherable as much. Things don't bother me as much as they used to. And I don't know when God removes these things. I just turn around one day and I'm like, in the past, that probably would have made me punch you in the face. I don't even have a bad temper anymore. Like what happened? <laughs> you know, like it's just, these are the things that, that the book promises us and that I've been able to experience. And it gets me ready for step 11. So at night I retire, I constructively review my day, you know, and I take that inventory and then, and then that's it. I go to sleep. I go to sleep and I enter dreamland and he doesn't want me to be apart from God. Not for one second because of my thinking mind. What does he say? He says on awakening, we ask God to direct our thinking. Well, now I'm in step 11. So I retire at night. I constructively review my day with God. I call somebody if I own amends or I put that towards, you know, when, when I'm going to be able to see them. And then when I wake up, I'm with God and I sit still and I be still and know that I'm God. And I do all those meditations and I do all those prayers and I ask God to direct my thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from selfishness, self-pity and self-seeking motives. And then I learn in that 11th step that I can use my will all I wish as long as it's within those, that framework and that that's going to be a practice and I'm going to act out still in full. I'm going to, I'm not always going to be inspired at all times. You know, he says we come to rely on it. It's one of our 11 step promises. Pause when agitated or doubtful. And my thinking gets placed on a higher plane when I'm practicing these things. But if I'm not running it past my support group and I'm not taking out the garbage in that 10th step, I'm probably not going to be fully inspired the way I think I'm being inspired. And I've, I've gone down that path and I used to judge myself for that. Like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm not doing God's will. And I stopped doing that because it was like, I was, I'm just doing the best I can. 
And God forgave me. You know, he forgave me. He gets me sober. He chooses us to do his work for him. Like, that's a big deal. (laughs) It's a really big deal. And so I start to experience this, you know, don't take it so seriously and just let it go and surrender and let go. And it it asks, you know, the 11th step is going to ask me to pause, surrender, let go, wait and pray and meditate and get still and get quiet. It gives me all these actions to do. And what happens is that I be, I start, I seek and I keep seeking and I have to go further and I have to go further. So when I get to that 12th step, by the time I'm there, you know, it's just for me, I had already had that spiritual awakening. Bill says we having had it as a result of steps one through 11. And I had instances of the experience where it was sudden and profound. And I had these overwhelming like visions and meditation. And, you know, I thought I was still on acid sometimes and <laughs> had to call people and they had to validate the experience for me. Just like what happens with Bill, you know, and, and, uh, I don't know, maybe it was from the acid. I don't know. But, uh, but the point is, is that I, I felt that was the closest glimpse into, into the kingdom of heaven that I've ever had. And it's real. When we say the kingdom of heaven, when we do that Lord's prayer, when we're doing that, you know, 11 step prayer in the 12 and 12, when we talk about being rocketed and the kingdom of heaven is in my mind and in my soul that I'm one with my creator and that I can breathe and I can inspire it in other people. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And we get to experience that here. And that's a huge promise we get. It's huge. So that's the message I try to carry to other alcoholics. And I don't do it perfectly, and I just try. And you, there's so many layers to this 12th step. You know, it's a lot. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, right, comma, we try to carry this message to other alcoholics, comma, well, if you're into the Oxford comma, if not, get the comma away, and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So for me, that gets my whole life. Like, that's going to be a lifetime of me getting to do that. And if you're sitting in this room, it's because you also get to do that. There's, there's no sadness. There's no tears spared here. He uses all of it. All of it. I don't get here a moment too soon. I used to be so regretful for those three years, you know, and I lied about my sobriety. I'm going to hell and all this stuff. And, you know, I just had this old understanding of God that I had to let go. I had to let go of it. Absolutely. And I had a lot of prejudice, old ideas. And, uh, and I remember people that I originally got sober with, they pick up their year and their two years and I feel so ashamed. You know, everybody's looking at me and everybody's judging me. And here I go picking up my six months and no, you're not that important. <laughs> that's what people told me. Like nobody's looking at you. We just love each other. And if they are, that's their stuff. I don't have to take that personally. I don't have to take your stuff personally. You know, you're working on whatever you're working on. It's your journey with God. And when I finally let all that go, it's because I helped other women through the work that had that same experience, you know, and that's why I love sponsorship so much. And I talked about it last week. I have so little to do with it. I don't go scouting for sponsees, you know, half the time I don't even raise my hand for it because I had to ask for it. You know, I've shared with this group. I had to really work for it with my sponsor. She was not letting me off the hook. And I don't in any way do that with sponsees, but we have to be willing. We have to at least ask the question. You know, will you sponsor me? And this is just how I was taught. You don't have to agree with it. It's just my experience. And I love it so much because 
I get to see the lightness come on and I I watch other women have such similar darkness to me and then I get to see them get their lives back and I get to see them recover and they go off to college and they're doing, you know, I have a sponsee, she's literally got the same first three years as me, you know, she's got the two jobs and one of them is this and one of them is that and she wants to go back to school and she's back in school and... And it's just amazing how much my spiritual awakening gets validated every single time through one of these girls that I see them and how they continue on this path. And where else can you go and get that? You know, this is the miracle club where where we get to experience this stuff. And all the external stuff aside, like the miracles right here in Alcoholics Anonymous are what blow my mind. Like I get all that physical stuff back. You know, I get the car and I get the career. I get another career. And that stuff is so secondary to the joy of living. None of that stuff gives me the joy. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of doing God's work. But it's, it's not. If that stuff gets taken away, I, I still have my joy. You know, I still have my gratitude. I still have my serenity. I still have my sobriety. And when all other me- measures fail, being able to be there for my family. You know, I became a godmother to my niece. She's seven. I've never, she's never had to see me drink. She's never seen me as the violent aunt that I was born as. You know, punching holes in things and getting arrested. She's never seen that side of me, you know. And guess who's going to be able to help her when she goes through puberty, when she's 13 years old? Yeah, I already see that little rebelliousness in her. And I'm like, I got you, Jewel. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you can come live, in, live with me. You're cool Aunt Allie. And, and I'll understand you, you know. And, uh, and having these relationships and seeing my friends, you know, my, my friends I get sober with, they go on and they get married and they have kids and they get jobs and careers and they, they go on and do amazing things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get to do amazing things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I go back to college in sobriety, I actually become friends with people. Imagine that. Like, I didn't know how to do that my first two times in school. One of my friends is a weirdo like me, and, uh, you know, he's, he's this brilliant writer. And he, God puts everybody in my life strategically, right? Just like how this whole program gets started, everything gets lined up. He actually inspires me to write my first novel. And if I had not gone back to school and worked at that restaurant and made the money and did all that, I never would have had that experience. I'm still friends with him. And I never would have had that experience. You know, and when I, when I get let go as a teacher because of my past, I still had that first, I had already been published as a writer. That deal came for me in sobriety. And my good friend, the one I told you about, not my sponsor, the other lady, you know, before I get published, she knew, she had heard me, she listened to me, and she knew that that was my real dream. And she said to me, you know, why don't you try writing for the grapevine? And I was like, eh, I don't like to share my stuff with people. You know, I'm an emotional person and, and uh, I don't want to be rejected. And She's like, well, you don't have anything to do about that. You just write it and send it out. You just write it and send it out. So I write this article. I send it out to World Service, you know. And, um, and she prefaces it. She goes, now, I've, I've been doing this a long time, and I just want to let you know you're not going to get published. Like, no one gets published their first time. Just It's going to teach you how to get rejected if you really want to be a writer. I was like, great. Like, this sounds like a fun time, you know. Fear of rejection, whatever. And I get a letter back, you know, three months later from World Service that they've decided to publish my article and I'm weeping and it's like it's a little thing but for somebody who is so afraid of sharing their work and so afraid of rejection to know and the article I happened to write was about how I had overdosed on Thanksgiving in my in my family's living room and the article actually was from darkness to light I think that was the title it was a while ago 
And, and for somebody like me, and I'm not saying this to brag or like blow my anonymity with this stuff for anything. I'm saying it to let you know how powerful God is in my life because that's not me. <laughs> and I called her and I was like, you're never going to believe this. I was crying. I was bawling like a little kid. She's like, they're publishing it, aren't they? I was like, yep. And she's like, wow, I had to write like 50 of those to get in, you know? <laughs> it's just like, and now she's in there all the time. And that experience, it was so symbolic for me because I had written that novel and I was so afraid to start sending it off to agents and everything. And I, you know, I want to get published by one of the big five publishing companies because, you know, it's just what I want and my little plans and designs. And that experience was so symbolic because, of course, the first time I ever get published with my dream as an Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, because this is my foundation. This is it. This is the Miracle Club. This is where I belong every day. Not just when I feel like it, not just when I'm in pain and I need a meeting, but this is my purpose. So, of course, that's the first place I get published. It was literally as if God was whispering to me saying, I told you I have you. I told you you're enough. I told you that you're supposed to do this. Just trust me. And I had this overwhelming spiritual experience from that, like overwhelming. And it allows me to go out and audition for Broward County. I become, you know, published through them and I am still working with them. And, and it, it gets me. And when I get let go as a teacher, I still have that deal going on. So it, it prompts me to be in my career today. And I can't make that up. You know, if you would have told me that that would have happened, <laughs> When I came in here 12 years ago and I kept trying to control and enjoy it for three years and I, I had all that darkness that this was going to be my life today, I would have been like, you're insane. You're crazy. And I've sponsored so many women who have that deal, you know, writers, artists, and they're so afraid of their art and they're so afraid of be creative and sober. And they don't know how to do that because, you know, we like to drink when we're creative. We think it makes us more creative. Not true. <laughs> and it was, you know, it's just not true. You know, the ultimate creator is God. So, of course, to be inspired, if you're sober, it's like 10 times better. It's how he creates us to be is inspired. And, uh, and I get to, to pass that experience on to them. One of my sponsees, you know, she was an artist and I still miss her. And she was awesome, man. This girl just captured my heart. And she's up in New York now doing her thing as an artist, doing great. And it's just like to see this, to see loneliness vanish and to watch others get their lives back and to recover, you know, this is the experience that we wish that you don't miss. And I would not have any of that without saying yes when people ask me to see, speak, saying yes when people ask me to clean up after the meeting, you know, my family coming to see me and wanting to see me and almost a little too much, like, okay, you know, I made those amends to you guys for three years. You wanted nothing to do with me. Now all of a sudden, oh, Allie's in Florida. She's safe now to be around. So maybe, <laughs> let's go down and visit her just one more time. And, and having that internal condition alleviated, it's just not there the way it used to be. And it's okay when stuff crops up and when I have my own darkness come in, because I learn not that darkness is the opposite of light. I don't learn that. I learned that the darkness is necessary for all of us to experience so that then we can seek the light and go on to enjoy the 12 steps as they're laid out in the big book. And it is an enjoyment thing. And if you're not with a sponsor who's in the book, who's working the steps as they're laid out in the big book, get a different sponsor. Because for me, that's the rocket ship ride. You know, and I don't want to deviate from that. And I want to continue to inspire that in other people 
because every single person in here has a unique message and a unique gift and a, a unique way to connect with somebody else. And that's his ever pervasive love that knows that that's his, that's him and his infinite wisdom. So when women come up to me and ask me to sponsor them, let's pray about it. And I always say, well, let's get God in the center of this deal. Cause I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> you know, it's always that. And I ask God to put willing people in my life that I can help and serve. And sometimes it's a reason and sometimes it's a season and sometimes it's a lifetime. And I don't get to know that. And none of it has to do anything with me anyway. I'm just here to try to carry the message and to continue to teach the big book, the way that it's been taught to me and go on and live happy, joyous and free one day at a time. You know, I was walking around all day smiling and squealing. You can ask my boyfriend, I drive him crazy. I was so excited to like have the 4th of July and be sober and I mean, this, the past three months that I've been doing this with you guys, like so many weird, like crazy, amazing blessings have come true in my life. And, and I'm telling you, it's directly related to this group. Like, I just love you guys so much. And, and if anything, you know, I'm sad to go and I'm, I'm going to miss you guys. But as much joy and peace and serenity and love that I've been able to experience, you know, if I can leave you with anything, it's that you too have the ability to experience all these things. And I wish you the same peace, joy, love, serenity, and happiness, and a loving relationship with God that's going to enable you to solve all your problems so that we can continue to walk shoulder to shoulder in this life. That's all I have. Thank you for letting me be here. One more time. like to introduce for his first uh, six months worth of secretary, Josiah is our secretary tonight. Welcome him. First night. So they say, if you're nervous, picture everybody naked, right? So I'm doing that, and I got to admit, it's making me uncomfortable, all right? So... My name is Josiah, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. <clears throat> In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. <clears throat> and I have asked Noah to read the recovered statement. I am Noah alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured? That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would, able to be, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than the body. Page 23. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. You know, I, I said something to my sponsor today. I just made an objective observation. And he sarcastically quipped back that I had to tell three people this before the uh, meeting was over. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to tell the entire meeting. It was, you know... The Tim tradition says we have no opinion on outside issues, right? So I don't have an opinion about today's holiday. Uh, but I do, I can make the objective observation that we're provided a level of freedom and opportunity in this country that uh, not many other people have, right? 
<clears throat> but that freedom doesn't mean anything if we're in the bonds of alcoholism, right? If we're in this prison in our minds. And I don't know if heaven and hell are real, but I do know they exist up here. And heaven is the solution for me. And uh, hell is my untreated alcoholism. And part of that solution tonight has been brought by Allie. It's been brought by her for 12 weeks now. And I I really want to thank you. I don't want to get emotional, but you have touched me and I believe everyone else in this room. And you said, you know, you don't pick favorites and uh, we don't pick favorites either, but you're one of my favorites. So thank you. Let's thank Allie one more time. All right. 1940 style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition Alcoholics Anonymous of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses and among the remainder Those who stayed with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistic above suggests a 75% success rate. Could I see a show of hands of all recovered alcoholics? Could I see hands for anybody that needs a sponsor? Would you, do you mind standing up? Not to embarrass you. Not to embarrass you. So please get with the people that raise their hands. You're the most important person, but let's get these folks back to God. All right. Last meeting of the month. This is the last meeting? Yes. Anyone celebrating a year or more, please stand up in place. No? It's not this month? Ah, sorry. Never mind. Don't do that. All right. Please join us Monday nights. Big book study, primary purpose. Fellowship starts at 6.30, and the study starts at 7.15, but be there at 6.30. Um, And it's in the third, it's on the big room, third floor, elevator, up. And now we're going to do announcements, yeah? Sorry, Mark had all this memorized, and I'm new to it, so you're going to have to bear with me for a little bit. But first announcement, Broward County Intergroup, serving Alcoholics Anonymous, Broward County, Florida. Looks like that's their office hours and a helpline. That's good stuff. Next slide. Volunteer opportunities. 2019 Gratitude Dinner to be held in November. Let's see, Sunday, June 30th at 1.30 p.m., Broward County Institutions Committee, monthly business meetings are at 10 a.m. at the 12-step house. And, uh, oh, too fast, all right. Gratitude dinner, June 30th, 4th Dimension Club. And that already happened, but it was amazing. Fellowship of the Spirit Conference. Oh, we had a great time, great message. And that's this meeting and the primary purpose. Um, please join us here. We're actually going to have Peter M., speaking. And if you've heard him, you know, that's going to be an amazing, incredible experience. And if you haven't heard him, please come and you might have a spiritual experience. Just maybe. Any more? All right, that's it. We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, and the little red book and big book dictionaries for sale in the back next to Mark. And we meet every Thursday, starting promptly at 7.15 p.m. We ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much.
He's good. We're going to keep him around for a while. Yeah, give him a round of applause. He's energetic. That's what we need on there, right? So it's the tradition of this group at the end of this series to present them with, with a, a, copy, a coffee cup, uh, a limited edition uh, pin, big book pin, and a limited edition uh, magnetic big book refrigerator. So I, I, I forgot, and I told my buddy next to me, said, quick, go get me a coffee cup to give her. He went and grabbed one of the styrofoam cups. <laughs> so... Allie, could you come up here and take your limited edition special, specially delivered? Now, I'm going to mail you the, uh, the, the limited edition mag- refrigerator magnet and the, the little pen. They're really cool. Okay. But thank you for your service. We appreciate it. You guys should have a pair of those now, don't you? Cool. You can have coffee together now. I wanted to fight over it. Uh, we have tonight's sessions and all of the podcasts online at, for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Uh, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday Night Big Book study. And for those who wish to meet the speaker intimately, join up, you know, meet up, uh, line up in the line. You can meet up and tell her what you thought of her share and how magnificent she is. Um, once again, we got Peter M. starting next Thursday. And we have... Uh, we're in Monday nights. We are currently in to the employers. So check us out where the big book comes alive Monday nights. So let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Take a moment. Who's going to bring us from shame to grace? Godspeed.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
This broken man I travel far and wide Through the great divide Through his own heart, yeah Well, I have a life today When it's give away and it's just about to stop God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
two. 